Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our walk through the book of Romans with James Jordan, and here he's going to be looking at chapters 9 through 11. If you have not yet downloaded the Theopolis app, we invite you to do so. You can find that app in your app store. That app contains a lot of video and audio content that you'll be helped by, and we're adding more there every week. As always, we hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Romans 9 through 11. Okay, Paul in Romans has started out with this Jew-Gentile, Jew-Greek problem and the problem of the law as it relates to Israel and the church. And he's pretty much settled the law question. We're no longer under the law, but we still keep the law because it reveals to us what our Lord Jesus Christ wants us to do. But his overall concern was to vindicate the righteousness of God And God's righteousness is defined as his loyalty to his promises in the covenant. He is right. He doesn't break his own rules. He doesn't break his own covenant. And right along, he's been showing that we are made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. But there's still the problem of God's righteousness. Now, how can God be righteous and also justify us sinners? How can he be consistent to the covenant which provides punishment for sin? Well, it's that he punishes Jesus Christ for our sins. But now there's another question. God's righteousness, God's covenant was a promise that Israel would be saved and that God would be faithful to Israel. And the Jews have counted on this. The Jews have said right along, God is faithful to us. We have the law. We're better than everybody else in a sense because... God has made his covenant with us, and he'll always be faithful to us. And Paul has been saying, no, God is not necessarily going to be faithful to you because you haven't been faithful to him. So now Paul has also been saying Israel's purpose has come to an end, and Israel is over. And so the question that is implied in all of that discussion is, how can God be faithful to his covenant with Israel if he's kicking Israel out now? How do we resolve that aspect of the question? Chapters 9 through 11 deal then with the question of God's faithfulness as it relates to Israel's purpose in history, or the Jews. And again, is concerning the Jew-Gentile question. We also saw that Paul begins his gospel by saying that he wants to come to Rome to impart a gift to them and to receive gifts from them so that they can one another one another. Well, this theme is also picked up in this section where the Jews are supposed to serve the Gentiles and the Gentiles are supposed to serve the Jews. The fall of Israel results in the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles results in the fullness of Israel. There's all this one-anothering that's going on between Jew and Gentile here in the last days. So, here we are, Romans 9 through 11. It's a long passage to consider, and we better hop into it. Basically, we are going to find eight sections in this passage. Verses 1 through 5 are an opening where the question is raised, what about Israel? Paul says, I am telling the truth in the anointed one, Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed 
away from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Jews. No, he doesn't say that. All of a sudden he says that they're Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service, the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the anointed Messiah according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Now, why does he stop calling them Jews and start calling them Israelites here? You've got to get an answer to that. All right? And the reason is that he's going to talk about their adoption as sons. In Romans 8, he's talked about how God adopts us as sons, and he's told us in chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from God. Because we're sons, nothing can separate us from God. Can death or life or angels or principalities or powers? Nothing can separate us from God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Nothing can separate us from God because we're sons. Well, now the problem is Israel was a son. Israel is being separated from God. So maybe we can't have all that much confidence after all. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 is the relevant cross-section, cross-reference. God says, you will say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son. I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So Paul switches from the word Jew, which means a member of Judah, to the word Israel because he is raising the question, if God wasn't faithful to his old sons, how can we be sure he's going to be faithful to us new sons? And that's a question. All right, now we're the sons. How about it? He fills out the blessings that came to Israel. They were adopted as sons. That's the first thing he mentions here. And the glory of God dwelt in their midst. The covenants were made with them. The law was given to them, which was in itself a good thing. The service of the tabernacle and the temple. The special promises of blessing. The fathers were particularly related to them. And according to the flesh, Jesus Christ was descended from them. And Paul says, I wish I could die for them, because it looks like they're lost. So now we come to part two. In order to answer this question, Paul starts off by saying, well, not all of Israel were elect. This is chapter 9, verses 6 to 23. Chapter 9, verses 6 to 23 is part two. And Paul, as he begins to discuss this question, what about Israel? What about their sonship? Was God faithful to them? The first thing he says is, well, God never promised to be faithful to all of them. He never promised to be faithful to all of them, only to some of them. And that's what he says in verses 6 to 23. Hear it. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. No, God hasn't failed. For they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they're Abraham's seed. But the scripture says, through Isaac... Your seed will be named. That is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children who are of the promise are regarded as seed. This is the word of promise. This is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but then there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived by one man, our father Isaac, and though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. 
Just as it is written in Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay. What? Well, what it says is not all the sons of Abraham received the promise. Isaac received the promise at birth because Isaac was the son of promise. But Ishmael didn't receive the promise because he wasn't the son of the promise. It's only later on that Ishmael receives the promise. Only after Abraham prays for him and God says, I will be with the lad. And the scripture confirms that by saying that after Ishmael left, God came to be with him. Esau never received the promise at all. And so you've got basically three possibilities here. You've got your Gentile believer, Ishmael, who receives the promise later on. You've got Isaac, who receives the promise at birth. You've got Esau, who never receives it at all. And they're all descended from Abraham. And what he's saying is, not all the descendants of Abraham receive the promise. Not all receive it automatically by birth. Not all receive it at all. Then he says that some of the descendants of Abraham, some people, and by implication some of the descendants of Abraham, are appointed by God as vessels for destruction. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Of course not. Are you crazy? God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Allow me to read verse 17 again, and if you're looking at it, look at it carefully. This is what scripture says concerning Israel. For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see, what's said about Pharaoh here might just as well be said about Israel. And that's the point. That is the point he's going to be getting to over and over again. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires, because he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, now you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, it's legitimate to ask this question. I mean... How can you escape asking this question? If God sovereignly determines who's elect and who's reprobate, who's going to be saved and who isn't, then how can he find fault? It's up to him. And Paul says, how can you answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now, what he has done is he's pushed back to the mystery of election and he has said we can't go any farther, we have to stop here. God makes these decisions. They're real. Just take a look around you and you see they're real. We can't understand it. There's no point in breaking your mind on it. You would have to be God yourself in order to understand election. And you're never going to be God, so you're never going to understand it. We confess that election is true. We confess that predestination is true. But we don't live by that. We live by the covenant which is revealed. So Paul says, well, you know, I'm telling you this. God says that he raises up certain people 
so his name will be proclaimed. And some of those people are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and others are vessels of glory. And we don't know why he does that, and that's just how it is. Just make sure you're a vessel of glory. But now notice the implications of this. The whole question here is the falling away of Israel, and he has begun to say something rather chilling and surprising. He starts off by telling us that not all the Israelites are saved, and some of them are Esau's. Then he goes to Pharaoh and says, God raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate his power and so that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, which sounds exactly like the purpose of Israel. And he says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then he says, what if God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, God has endured with much patience the Israelites. And they have interpreted that as God's righteous covenant faithfulness to them because God loves them and God will never hurt them because they're circumcised. But now Paul is suggesting that maybe the reason that God has been so patient with them is because they're vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. God hardens both Pharaoh and Israel. God is patient, but this may not be for blessing but for destruction. And if Israel has this kind of self-confidence in mere ritual and law, as keeping them in the covenant, they may well be vessels of wrath instead of vessels of mercy. Cutting off Israel, if that's the case, then when God cuts Israel off, that's not a sign of unfaithfulness because God never promised that his righteousness would be given to vessels of wrath. And God's covenant faithfulness is not given to vessels of wrath. They just look like it looks the same because God has been patient and he has taken a long time to get around to it. But it's not the same. Now, that tells us something. We look out in the world. We see that God is not instantly judging the wicked. He lets them go on and on. And he's not instantly blessing us, and we're going on and on. And to outward appearances, we don't look all that different from the wicked. Now, a society like ours is starting to sort out more and more. But many times in history, there doesn't appear to be that much difference. Does that mean that God is faithful to us? We're saved just by being Americans? A lot of people seem to think that. Well, we're not. The fact that God hasn't dealt with us yet may mean that we're vessels of wrath, we as a nation. Now, the other thing Paul implies by all this, by quoting from scriptures, is that Jews should have known this from the scriptures. They should have known that not all Israel are Israel. They should have known that God raises up vessels of wrath to demonstrate his wrath to the nations, and that that was part of his purpose for Israel, and so they should never have been presumptuous. So Paul is saying, the scriptures are on my side, not on your side, O Jews. Now then, Paul advances his argument further. In verses 24 to 29, this is the third section, if you're taking notes, section 3, chapter 9, verse 24 to 29. He says that the promise and God's faithfulness was always for the Gentiles as well, plus only a remnant to Israel was promised. God never promised that he was going to be faithful to all of Israel. He only promised that he would be faithful to a remnant of Israel. And he proves that out of the scripture. Verses 24 to 29. Even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God, Gentiles. God intended to save Gentiles all along. This isn't something new or different. 
And he always was saving Gentiles. Now concerning Israel, Isaiah cries out, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For Yahweh will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly, just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of hosts had left us a posterity, we should have become as Sodom and should have resembled Gomorrah. And what's he saying? He's saying the gospel was always for the Gentiles, and God never promised to save Israel. God only promised to save a remnant of Israel. Is God faithful to Israel? Maybe not, but then he never said he would be. So it's not unrighteous for God not to be faithful to all of Israel. Their vessels are wrath. Is God faithful to the remnant? Yes. You want to see God's righteousness and his faithfulness to his old covenant sons? You've got to look at the remnant, not at the whole. Now, in fourth section here is in chapter 9, verse 30, to 10, verse 21. And in this section we find that the Gentiles, when they heard the promise, responded to it, whilst most of Israel did not. The Gentiles responded to the promise while most of Israel did not. Remember, it's not the children of the flesh who are heirs. It's the children of the promise. And when the Gentiles respond to the promise, they become sons of God. And when the Israelites don't, then they show that they're vessels of wrath and never were sons of God. So chapter 9, verse 30 to 10, verse 21. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained a righteousness, even the righteousness which comes by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law righteousness, did not even arrive at the law. Why? Because they didn't do it by faith, but they did it by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. But Christ is the end or goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what's he basically saying here? He's saying that... Unless you trusted in God personally, the law can't be kept the right way. The Gentiles, by faith, linked up with God. They didn't have the law to teach them about righteousness, but they got righteousness because they linked up with God by faith. Melchizedek, Jethro, the Ninevites, all the rest of them. And now in the New Covenant. But Israel, with the law to help them out, didn't even arrive at the law. They didn't even keep the law right. Why? Because they didn't link up with God. They didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They didn't have a personal relationship with Yahweh. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Instead of believing in the stone and putting the faith in the rock of their salvation, they stumbled over the stone and it became a rock of offense. And so they did not accept or acknowledge God's righteousness, which was in his person but sought to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. And they did not recognize Christ when he came. And they didn't recognize Yahweh in the Old Testament most of the time. So when you cut the law off from a personal relationship with Christ, it just becomes confusion. And you can't even keep it right. That's the first thing he says. 
Gentiles were responding to the promise. Israel was not responding to the promise. Now he makes a couple of arguments out of the law. And this is uh, questionable of interpretation. I'll give you two interpretations of verses 4 and 5. The first one is this. For Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. The law taught about Christ. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness of the law shall live by that righteousness. And the righteousness based on faith says the same thing. Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down. Don't ascend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. But rather the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching about Jesus. Now what's his point if we read it that way? The whole purpose of the law is to point to Jesus Christ. Moses says the one who practices law righteousness will live. But since we also know that the just live by faith, Moses must be saying the same thing. And so we follow that up by saying Moses also spoke about Jesus by talking about bringing Christ into the hearts and minds of the people. And so the main focus of the law was to reveal Jesus and the details were secondary. Now the other way to read this is that verse 4 says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, using the law for righteousness ends with Jesus. Now we get righteousness through Jesus, and the law just becomes a tool. And in verse 5, Moses writes that the man who practices law righteousness lives by that righteousness, which is a verse that doesn't say anything about Christ, and so it could be misused by the Jews to say, we work with the law and we don't need to have a personal relationship with Yahweh. We got circumcised, we obey, that's it. This personal relationship with Christ stuff, we don't need. But verse 6 and 7 is a contrast which says, look, there are passages in the law that do speak of Christ and thus show the true context of law keeping. Now, I don't know which of those to go with, okay? The point's the same either way. Look at it this way. You've been baptized as a baby, and you grow up in the church, and you try to do what's right, and you say, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? I know I'm a Christian because I'm baptized. God promised that I would be his child. And I'm trying to do what's right, and so that makes me a Christian. Paul says that's not enough. That's what these Jews were doing. You've got to say, God baptized me and made me his child, and I'm trying to get to know him personally day by day. I talk to him. I listen to him. I'm trying to get to know him as a friend, as a person. And I'm trusting him. And I'm trying to do what he says. It's that element of personal relationship with God that we're supposed to have. That personal trust in God that we're supposed to have that's added in here. If it's just baptism or circumcision plus obedience, that's what Paul is attacking. A righteousness that comes through the law. It has to be baptism or circumcision plus prayer. A prayer life with God. Getting to know Him. Letting Him get to know you. You have to ask Jesus into your life every day. You have to ask the Holy Spirit to come and be with you every day. Whenever you think about it. Okay? You have to spend some time on your knees saying, Lord, show me my faults and forgive me. Be my friend. And that's real. 
And when we grow up in the church, many times we find that out later on. But we still need to find that out. And then we do what he says, not just because it's written down in a book, but because we know him personally and we want to please him. That's the difference. Now, if some of you young people don't quite know what I'm talking about, then I want you to talk to Pastor Terry or one of the other pastors about this, or to your parents. Because there's a difference between growing up and saying, I'm a Christian and I'm trying to obey the law, and not really knowing anything about walking and talking with Jesus. You've got to learn to walk and talk with Jesus and have a personal relationship with him, okay? And that's the contrast that he's making here. That's the contrast. All right. Well, what else does he say here? Well, he gives us this strange reference in verses 6 and 7. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down? Who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? That's very complicated, and I really don't want to try to get into all that tonight unless you just are dying to know more about it. Nobody really knows exactly what Paul means by quoting this. It says back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, we'll do this much. What's happening here in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, well, verses 11 to 14, Moses, under the inspiration of God, says this, For this commandment that I command you today is not too difficult for you. It's not out of reach. It's not in heaven. The law is not up in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and to make us hear it that we may observe it? You don't need to do that. You don't need to ask somebody to go up to heaven to get the law and tell it to us. You know why? Because Moses already did that for you. Moses went up on the mountain inside the cloud, and that's heaven. And he brought it down and taught it to you. So it's not staying up in heaven. It's been brought back down, and it's been written down. Nor is it across the sea in some other country that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Where is the law? It's located inside the tabernacle. It's located in the books that Moses wrote that are kept there, and it's going to be read to them. It's not across the sea. It's not up in heaven. Moses went and got it and brought it down from heaven. It's not across the sea. It's right here in the middle of Israel. This word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. It was in their heart, which means that those people, the ones that were saved, they knew Yahweh personally. They walked with him and they talked with him. They had a personal relationship with Yahweh Christ, who is incarnated and is now known as Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is quoting that here, and he makes some changes in it. He says, who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? So Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? Now, that's not from Moses. Moses doesn't say who will descend into the abyss. He says who will go across the sea. But there's an idea here that Christ can be brought down from heaven, but it's also his death that is brought to us. It's heaven that's brought to us by Jesus, but it's also death and sacrifice that are brought to us by Jesus, his atonement. But what does he say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The same word that we're preaching. So again he's saying the true Jews, the true Israelites, the remnant, always knew the secret which is that you have a personal relationship with God, and that is the context in which you follow out the law. It was near them. And he continues here to the end of this chapter by saying, this is verse 9, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I'm not sure what the differences are here, but that's for a really intensive study in Romans. If you believe, you confess, you belong to God, that's what needs to be done to be saved. The scripture says, whoever trusts him will not be disappointed. And look at this again. He says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. After all, the Bible says in Joel, whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Everybody will be saved who calls on Yahweh. It's always been salvation by trusting God, getting to know him, trusting him, walking with him. Believing what he says. Obeying comes afterwards. Then he says, now look, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they going to hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, the question then comes, well, if Gentiles are saved... And the Israelites didn't do a very good job of taking the message out. How did they ever hear the word? You need a preacher. And uh, the preacher, the evangelist who takes the word out, has beautiful feet. (laughs) Because he brings good news. He's the runner who comes from the battle and says, we won. But they did not all believe the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Israel had preachers, and they didn't believe. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they never heard, have they? The Gentiles never heard. In other words, he's continuing on here. You've got to have a preacher to hear. Israel had a preacher, but they wouldn't hear. Man, the Gentiles didn't have any preachers at all, right? No, no. Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The Gentiles did hear. They heard all along. They did have a preacher. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all this day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He's making the point The Gentiles heard the word gladly. Israel didn't. Beginning to look like Israel is Pharaoh. That Israel is a vessel of wrath. That God set Israel up to demonstrate his wrath to the world, not to demonstrate his grace. God saved Gentiles to demonstrate his grace. We keep getting these surprising Gentile converts in the Old Testament, like Elijah's widow, Naaman the Syrian, Hiram of Tyre. In Jesus' day, he praises the Roman centurion, says, I've never seen faith like this in Israel. Joseph's brothers wouldn't listen to him, but the Egyptians did. It's beginning to look like the God-fearing Gentiles in the Old Testament are there to display the grace of God, and Israel is there to display the wrath of God. Now, that's not what the Jews thought. That's not what most people think in Christianity today either. But I didn't write this. Okay. Just look it over. Go back to verse 16. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? 
The Israelites did not believe the word. The Gentiles, well, they didn't have any preachers, so there was no hope for them. Nope, they did have a preacher. Psalm 19. What is the preacher that the Gentiles had? Even when the Jews were not faithful and did not take the word out to the Gentiles, and they were like Jonah and didn't want to go, it says here, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their utterance is to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. His rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hid from his heat. Yahweh's law is perfect, restoring the soul. Yahweh's testimony is sure, making wise the simple. This psalm seems to be saying... The natural revelation, particularly the revelation in the firmament sky above, has the same content as the law of Israel at its most basic level. Now, the association between the firmament and the book is a piece of symbolism that you're probably not familiar with, so let's take a minute on it. It may be interesting to you anyway. Genesis 1, God sets up the firmament between the heavens and the earth. It is the mediating boundary. And he calls it heaven so that the firmament reveals what is in heaven and has the same name as the highest heavens. The firmament is the blue sky and everything in it. The word firmament means fortress or chamber. And so when you look up at the sky, it's like looking into a chamber. During the day, there's the sun and a blue sky. During the night, there are all these stars in this chamber. And this chamber is a picture of the realities in the highest heaven. Numerous times in the Bible, it tells us the sky rolled up like a scroll. The reason the sky rolls up like a scroll is that the firmament is a book. And Psalm 19 tells us that the content of that book is basically the same content as the Bible. Now, exactly how that works, I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. All it tells us is, it was possible for Gentiles to look up at the sky and know some things about the covenant and hear the word of God and put their trust in him and be saved. Now, I think he goes back to the Noahic covenant where God put the rainbow in the sky And that these Gentiles, who are all descended from Noah, would have some knowledge of that. But I suspect that although the Bible doesn't go into it, that the part of the Noahic covenant that's not expressed, you know, the rainbow is the first thing, but I suspect that the rest of the stuff here in Psalm 19 about the sun and the stars is also part of the Noahic covenant. And the four major constellations correspond to the four faces of the cherubim, And thus, when you look up at the stars and you see a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, you are seeing a heavenly picture of the highest heavens. When John gets up into the highest heavens, what does he see? These four faces. Now, you look up at the sky, what's in the sky? Those four faces. So that the firmament heavens shows the realities in the highest heavens and reveals God. Now, I don't know how people in the ancient world thought about this. I'm not talking about predicting by astrology. I'm talking about the heavens being a revelation. I don't know how it works. What I do know is this, 
Psalm 19 says that there is a kind of speech and language that comes out of the sky that some people could discern that is parallel to the law of the Lord, which is perfect and converts the soul. And Paul says the same thing here. He says that the Gentiles somehow got message from God and the voice of this natural revelation in the firmament, which shows heaven and is the same as a book, that message has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Well, then he says, well, maybe you're going to say that Israel didn't really know the truth or they didn't know that the Gentiles were getting the word. But Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. In other words, when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the Jews become jealous and angry. Of course, that's exactly what is happening in the book of Acts. The Jews are enraged that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. It happened before with Jonah. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me, referring to Gentiles. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, Gentiles have always heard, and lots of Gentiles have believed. And when we get to heaven, we're going to find loads and loads of Gentiles from the ancient world before Christ who are in heaven. Some of whom probably were in China or Australia and never even heard about the Jews. But God was generously saving them through the Noachic Covenant by means of revelation that we no longer even have to worry about because we've got the Bible and we're living in the New Covenant. And it's kind of like the book of Jasher, you know. You read the Old Testament and it talks about the book of Jasher and these other books that have disappeared. Well, our ability to read the firmament has disappeared. But they had that ability in the ancient world. And I believe that's what was being said here. Therefore, Israel is a vessel of wrath to display God's wrath. That's the conclusion here. And the climax of that is in A.D. 70. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation says. Jesus comes to the seven churches and he says, I'm coming soon. I want you to shape things up. Take care of that woman Jezebel. Deal with those Nicolaitans because I'm coming soon. And you want to know what I mean by coming soon? Take a look. And then he describes the destruction of Jerusalem, another church in another city. There's an eighth letter in Revelation, and it's the little book. And the angel of the eighth church is Jesus, who opens the little book. And it contains, well, the book, not the little book, but the book. He breaks the seals on it, and he preaches it to that eighth city, which is Jerusalem. And that's an object lesson to everybody else. Israel is like Pharaoh. The Jews are an object lesson of wrath to everybody. Am I making this clear? Because that's not what they thought. They thought they were a city set on the hill, and they were an object lesson of God's grace to everybody. You want to see what it's like to be saved? Look at us. Paul is saying, well, in reality, they can look at the remnant and see what it's like to be saved. But if you want to see what it's like to be saved, look at all these surprising Gentiles that God saved through grace who didn't even know much of anything. And if you want to see God's wrath, look at Israel. The whole history of Israel shows this. Think about your Old Testament history. The Jews are constantly sinning and being punished. I mean, it is a history of punishments. Now, that doesn't seem very encouraging to Paul. Paul wants his people saved. He wants the Israelites saved. And now he's being ruthlessly honest with God's program. 
And if it frightens you a little bit to think about this, it should. Because when the church hardens up and stops staying close to Jesus and just becomes, we're baptized and we have the Bible, they become just exactly like those Jews. And you become an object of wrath too. Same God, same means of rule. Okay, chapter 11. I know, you've been waiting with bated breath. We come to chapter 11. Part 5, chapter 11, 1 to 10. Part 5, chapter 11, 1 to 10. In Israel, a remnant is chosen, but the rest are hardened. Now, that's the same word used for Pharaoh, and so it's parallel. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite. In other words, I'm an Israelite. I'm not rejected. A descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, whom he foreloved. Don't you know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleased with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars. I alone am left and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God's choice. What then? The thing that Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. The glorification of the law. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Here it's said of Israel. The majority were hardened. The 7,000 remnant were saved. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Israel is going to be saved through the remnant. So God hasn't cast off his promises to Israel. His promise was always, I will save a remnant. And God is faithful. God is righteous. God is saving a remnant. God is fulfilling his promise. But as far as the majority is concerned, well, in a sense, God gave them a chance. But they rejected it, and he never promised that he would save those who spit on him and would not hear. And he's really talking about reprobation here. God hardens him. He gives him a spirit of stupor and so forth. So, point five, a remnant was chosen, the rest were hardened. Now, one thing that we can understand from this reference is that if you look at the history of the Old Testament, you'll find that God punishes the majority and saves a remnant, but the remnant is always a seed for a later harvest. The 7,000 who did not bow their knee to Baal multiply and do evangelism and result in a lot of people. And then they fall away and it's just a remnant left. And then there's judgment, and then the remnant goes out and multiplies again and becomes a lot of people. That's implied here. Paul is basically saying, right now, when I write this letter, there's just a remnant of Israel left. But that implies that that remnant is going to do some work, and there will be a harvest of Israel to come out of it. There'll be a lot more Jews saved before it's all over with, but to start with, it's just a remnant. Now, he follows up that theme in section 6 and 7. Section 6 is chapter 11, verses 11 to 25. Israel's fall helps the Gentiles and warns them. Israel's fall helps the Gentiles and warns them. Point six, 
chapter 11, 11 to 25. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Israel stumbling. No, are you nuts? By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. So the hardening of Israel is for the sake of the Gentiles so that the gospel goes to them. And is to make the Jews jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? So there's some kind of fullness of Israel that's coming. Not just a remnant, but a fullness. A fullness that's going to grow out of this remnant. And if their transgression results in all of their riches being passed to the Gentiles and blessing on the world, something even greater is going to happen out of the fullness of Israel. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In other words, I'm called to minister to the Gentiles, but I want to make my ministry, I want to enlarge it to include Jews. And I hope that my ministry to you Gentiles will result in conversion for Israel. Now, I want you to notice that very importantly here. Most interpreters think of this conversion of Israel and this fullness of Israel as something that's going to happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet. But someday, maybe soon, maybe not so soon, Israel is going to suddenly convert and it's going to be a fullness of Israel. And that's either going to start a wonderful age for history or it's going to happen just before Jesus comes back. But Paul says that he expects his ministry to play a large part in this event, which I think is a very good indication that this fullness of Israel is something that happened before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, after which, according to the book of Revelation, there really is no more Jew, there is no more Greek. You just got believers and unbelievers. But the final salvation of Israel happened in the years preceding A.D. 70, and Paul says he expects his ministry to have something to do with that. Let me continue this passage, this section, and we'll come back to that question. Verse 15 says, For if the rejection of the Jews is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Some kind of resurrection is going to happen out of this. And I would call it a political resurrection. There is the individual resurrection that we experience in the inner man, but God is one in three. And there is a death and resurrection of the church, of the body politic of the kingdom of God that takes place in A.D. 70. The divided church of the Old Testament, which had Jew and Gentile in it, is killed and comes back to life again as one church. And that's an A.D. 70 event. And then at the end of history, there's the individual physical resurrection of the body that we're still looking for. So this is, I think, an ecclesiastical death and resurrection here. The death of the Jew-Gentile churches, the resurrection of one new church in the years around A.D. 70. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are also. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches that were broken off. For if you're arrogant, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. You stand only by your faith. Don't be conceited, but be afraid. Be very afraid. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fail severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them back in. But if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more these who are the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, lest you become wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's saying, first of all, he's got this big analogy of the olive tree, and he says that the Gentiles are put into the olive tree, which means that this is all their history. This is your history. Your history is not the history of Western civilization. Your history is this Bible history. You were in the Red Sea. You were at the flood. God's promises were made to you. You were sons of Abraham, and you get to have this whole history as your history. We need to remember that. And the people over in Palestine today were broken out of this history, and it's not their history. Okay, it's our history. We are the true Israel of God. And he makes the point that if we become proud like they did, we can be broken off and others can be put in. The specific thing he's talking about, I think, happens in the years preceding A.D. 70. He says that there is a fullness of the Gentiles that's coming in, which will provoke the Jews to jealousy and rage, and then they will come in. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you find this jealousy and rage going on constantly. But I'll tell you something, after the destruction of Jerusalem, Judaism changed so much that they no longer recognize the truth of Christianity and there's nothing to make them enraged. They don't care if we're Christians. It doesn't enrage them. It's really only in that first transitional generation that you can have people enraged by this. The idea of enraging them and provoking them to jealousy is not something that works if you go down a couple of more generations because there's historical distance and they just don't care anymore. They've now separated into two groups. The groups don't have much of any contact and this is no longer a problem. It is a problem in this first generation, which is another indication that this is speaking of something that's going to happen at that time. Also, Matthew 10, verse 23, Jesus says... Whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Well, I mean, they got done going through the cities of Israel, and, and that was over in A.D. 70. And that must be a reference to the coming of the Son of Man. And it must indicate then that the message to Israel was completed by that time, by the time the Son of Man came in the destruction of Jerusalem. We could go to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we find that there is a ceiling of 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, along with a large mixed multitude. We watch as that church of both Jew and Gentile, two different groups, works together to be an invading army, conquering the land of Palestine and fighting against the demonically inspired forces of the Jews. We watch as those people bear witness in Jerusalem and are killed. And then we watch in chapter 14 as there is a great harvest. Christ puts in his sickle and harvests the wheat and the grapes, both of which refer to the saints, 
so that there is a great massacre of believers right before the destruction of Jerusalem. And the blood of these believers spills out over the entire land and calls up the avenger of blood, and that is what results in the destruction of Babylon, Jerusalem, in A.D. 70. We could have done all that if I'd been allowed to teach the book of Revelation. But no, 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 no. I had to teach Romans, so here we are doing Romans. But, I mean, you could have had more, but there you are. Don't complain to me about it, because I don't have time to go into all that now. You know who to speak to about this matter. So, that's only humor now. I don't mind this at all. But that's where we could go to find a whole lot more information about this. At any rate, I think that the, the fullness of the Gentiles, the Gentile harvest out of the Old Testament, is seen in Paul's own mission. After AD 70, there's no such thing as a Gentile. And there's no such thing as a Jew in Bible terms. In Bible terms, those don't exist anymore. They're just believers and unbelievers. But there's a final harvest of Gentiles. And Paul is doing that, and Gentiles are believing. And not many Jews are believing. But he says, when I've gotten a fullness of these Gentiles in, and the fullness of the harvest of the God-fearers, all these Old Testament God-fearers have come on into the church, then there's going to be a mass conversion of Jews too. And God is going to save a whole bunch of them, and he's going to show his final faithfulness to Israel at that time. And they will be massacred. He doesn't imply that here, but the book of Revelation shows us that they are massacred, they become martyrs, and then Jerusalem is destroyed. And that's the end of it. That's the whole picture here. Paul's purpose is not to give us a prediction of these events. Paul's purpose is to say, God is faithful. This whole book is a vindication of the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God. And God is righteous and faithful to Israel because he never promised to save all of them. He promised to save the remnant. And on top of that, he's going to save a fullness of them. So, no charge can be made against God's faithfulness. There's a Gentile fullness coming and then a Jewish fullness. That's section 7. Very quickly, chapter 11, verses 26 to 32 is section 7. And it gives us this one-anothering business. The Gentile fullness comes, then that provokes the Jewish fullness. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you become wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. There's that word hardening again. They've been made pharaohs. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is the covenant that I make with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Everything God really promised, he's going to do. Save the remnant, save Israel as a block, and cut out a few bad people at the destruction of Jerusalem. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. For God has shut all up in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And then finally there is a doxology in verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Any questions? Okay. Are there any historical evidence of that? 
No. The only thing we have is Josephus, and Josephus just says absolutely nothing about the Christians, which shows that he is deliberately editing his history, because the Christians were a major factor, and he completely ignores them. So he's about as reliable as the New York Times, and we just don't have much of anything else. Uh huh. No, like I say, we know that some Christians left the city and escaped. My suspicion is that this mass turning of Jews to Christ happened probably after the Romans came. After most of the already Christians left, I think there was probably in that final tribulation a great turning of people to Christ, which Josephus says nothing about. And those Christians would have been severely punished by the nationalistic zealot Jews because they would have said, let's give up to the Romans. <laughs> And they would have been about as popular as Jeremiah for saying that. Not much news would have got out. No, and not much news would have gotten out. But I don't see any other coherent way to read these passages and put them together. So although we don't have any Suetonius or Josephus to tell us anything about it, I think that it's definitely implied, practically predicted here and in Revelation. Yes, sir. Yeah. So apparently the revelation was there for them. He was saying, hey, hey, Yeah. Somehow or other, there was revelation to these Gentiles in the ancient world that we just don't know much about. But the Bible affirms that it was there, and God was saving people through it, and I think we have to respect that. Yeah. And that's the good point. If all Jonah said was, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed, then <laughs> he wasn't filling any background on that. There must have been some background somewhere. Well, thank you. It's been fun. It's been fun for me to be forced to go through Romans, and I've enjoyed it, in spite of all my humorous remarks to the contrary. And I've enjoyed being here. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.